0: This message was recorded at Devoted, a Christ Central festival for all the family. To find out more about Devoted, please visit devotedevent.org.
1: So welcome to the Kingdom of God in Life, life zone. My name is Graham Anns. I'm part of Christ Central team. Now just to say, if you're a parent here... Uh, if you are required, then the name of your child will be given to uh, a steward at the back, and they will come forward with a board. So just keep your eyes peeled. Anyone comes forward with a board with your name on it, then you will be required uh, in your child's kids' work. Okay. So the aim of this zone you'll have read the uh, the handbook, obviously. The aim of this Lifestone is to explore what it is to be a true disciple. And a true disciple is someone who, who influences and transforms culture as well as all the other things that we, we get taught about in church. Someone who advances the kingdom of God. That's why we're, why we're here. It's to help all of us who are followers of Jesus, that our calling in life is not just, what is my spiritual gift on a Sunday morning? Okay? And it's very easy for us to feel that and think that. It's not about what role do we have in our small group or in our, in our rotors, and all those things are very important to church life, and we know they are. And please do not go back to your church leader and tell them that I told you that none of those things were important at all, uh, because they are. But the reality is that's not, not, that's not everything that we're called to do in life. And sometimes we can, we can feel that our, our spiritual gift is for those settings. But God has called us to life. He's called us in our workplace. He's called us uh, in our local community. He's called us in the gym where we go. He's called us in our art class or wherever else we are. God has called us to be involved with people because the kingdom of God is where the glory and the rule of God is. And the kingdom and the rule and the glory of God is is wherever we are because we bring that into the situations that we go into. Because the purpose of God is to send us, we're the image bearers of God, and the purpose of God is to send us to fill the earth with the glory of God. That's what the Bible tells us. It says we are the fulfilment of Jesus. We fulfil with the fulfilment. And Jesus said we are to be his disciples, and his disciples are the salt and the light. We're the salt of the earth. And salt was to be mixed in. It was to be mixed into the whole meal. We're not called to be a dip on the side of society, a dip on the side of our workplace. We're called to be mixed into our workplace. We're called to be mixed into those settings that we live our lives so that we are the flavor of God. God's called us to be the flavor. To be the flavor, we have to be mixed into the whole. We don't just stand on the sidelines and speak into it. No, we have to be mixed into everything that's going on in our lives. And that's what God has called us to. He's called us to be light in those places, light to the whole room, not just under the bowl of Sunday mornings is how I tend to look at it. He's called us to be the light to the world, the light to society, the light to culture. And for us... The culture and the society is those parts of culture and society that we're in. The parts that God has called us to. And so God has called us to be salt and light. And that's, that's not us. We're called to be salt and light to wherever we are. Wherever God has called us to. And wherever we are can mean places that we, we think, well, actually, I didn't want to be called there. And we think about our workplace. And we think, God, I didn't, I didn't want to be in that place. Well, perhaps God has called us there for purpose. There is a great quote from, from Rick, Rick Warren that says this, the strength of a church does not lie in its seating capacity. In other words, how strong our churches are is not how many people sit down to listen to the preach on a Sunday morning. Okay, the strength of the church is its sending capacity. And by sending, it doesn't just mean who gets sent out to plant a church down the road. It means all of us who are sent every day. All seven days of the week, we're all sent to wherever God has called us to be. That is the strength of a church. So how strong are our churches? How much focus have we got on what you and I do on a daily basis every day? We want to change aspects of our church culture in Christ Central, and that's, that's partly why we're running this seminar. That's why the series this year is about the kingdom of God, is because we want to change church culture to effectively equip and release all of us in our daily lives for God to break in. And so that when we have our church prayer meetings, we don't just pray for the small groups, the youth groups, the Sunday meetings, and all the other things that we tend to pray for, which are all good, because they're part of our church life. No, we actually pray for each other when we're out there every day on our, our what Neil will call, front lines. We're out there every day. We want to pray for each other. We want our small groups to be places where we find support, where we find prayer support for each other. What do we do every day? Sometimes they go to small groups and people actually don't know what people do. Every day, and We need to be those who, who understand each other's lives and supporting and praying for each other because that's where the kingdom of God mostly is. It's mostly where we are. And we're not mostly in church meetings. We're mostly at work. We're mostly at home. We're mostly in our local community. So that's what this lifestone's about. It's about where we are and what God is doing through us. And so today, Neil is with us. I want to give most of this morning over to Neil. And he's going to be talking about what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus in life? So Neil, he'll introduce himself, but he's uh, the Director of Church Relationships for the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity, and he leads a team of consultants who inspire church leaders to do the sort of things that he's going to be talking about this morning. And I'm going to, whatever he talks about, I hope he does talk about his materials, I just want to come in on the back of that and say, look, there's some great stuff out there. These guys have got some really good materials. I'd love to see them in our churches. So please go back to your church leaders and say, look, there's this material out there can we get hold of it? Can we read some of the books that Neil will talk about? I've read uh, one of Neil's books called Imagine Church, Releasing Dynamic Everyday Disciples. It is a great book. And I know he's just had another one uh, released as this month, last month. So hopefully he's going to talk about those. So they're the sort of books we need to read. They're the sort of books we need to feed on. So let's, let's welcome Neil. Let's welcome him this morning. He's going to lead us through the
0: rest of today. well good morning can you hear me right at the back excellent it's kind of interesting being next to this one can we just have sort of spontaneous laughter from time to time that has nothing to do with anything just to make the other people think oh well, well they're doing all right up there thank you for the invitation to be part of uh devoted to be part of your weekend um as Graham said, I, I work for this group called the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Uh, they pay me four days a week. The rest of the time, I'm a church leader as part of a team in a place called Salford. I've never had that response anywhere else. I've, really, I've been part of that church community for 30 years, uh, just over. Um, I've only really led two ch- churches in a paid capacity, One was in Guernsey. I don't know if you've been to Guernsey, but Guernsey is beautiful. And when you go to Guernsey, certainly 30 years ago, you don't want to carry your car keys around with you. So when you drive to the town at 30 miles an hour, which is the speed limit on the whole island except where it's 20, you put your car keys, you park on the pier, you put your car keys in the footwell of your car, close your door, meet the whole of the island the definition of which is 55,000 alcoholics clinging to a rock. You meet the whole island, and then you come back, and your car is still there for, if they stole it, where would they go? (laughs) On an island nine miles by three, there's just nowhere to go. And uh, we move from there to Salford. (laughs) Which is very similar. (laughs) Literally, literally. We arrived on the Monday. On the Friday, we had a deacons meeting. And one of the guys' cars got stolen uh, from outside the church. And so I was really young, too young to be a church leader, really, but I was far too young. But I was young, and I wanted to be this spiritual giant. So I said, suggest we would pray for these young lads. As they switched, and for some of you that are too young for this, the cassette recorder on (laughs) in the car, and listen to Graham Kendrick singing, Make Way, Make Way that that would lead to saving faith. we prayed that ever such a lot over subsequent cars until we started to pray a more psalm-like prayer, a more biblical prayer that essentially said, oh God, get them. And um, I'm not sure exactly how or whether God answered any of the prayers in which uh, ways we wanted, but that's been my church community. I say all that for this reason. Everything I'm going to talk about I'm absolutely committed to it, but we're trying to do it on the ground, in an ordinary place with ordinary people, just like yourselves. And um, so I kind of hope it comes from that. As part of this seminar, from time to time, I will ask you to speak to the person next to you or in front of you. You might just want to take a look at them at the moment. And if you need to move, now would be a good time. <laughs> All right. Some of you love this sort of thing because uh, you just don't know. You're, you're an outward processor and you don't know what you're thinking until you start speaking. And uh, you love times like that. And some of you hate it because it's like you just need time to think. If you hate this, let me reassure you about two things. Firstly, find someone who loves it because you won't have to say anything. They'll just, <laughs> they'll just talk and talk and talk and uh, and, and, and you'll be fine. Do you want to just say hello to someone who's not the person you've come to, with, because they still remember you. But, but someone either side of you, just say, my name is such and such, and this is where I'm from, and I might talk to you later. All right. I just kind of imagined you'd say hello. I didn't realize you were building lifelong relationships. But that's great. These seminars follow this theme. And uh, mine is simply one of uh, the three that will happen. And others will come and talk about work and they'll talk about family life and the rest of it. And I just want to set the scene really about what does it mean to live as an agent, as a sign of, as a signpost to the kingdom in your everyday life. And uh, that world, wherever it is, whatever it's involved with, that world in which you're the salt And the light of the world. I grew up in the Salvation Army. My parents were Salvation Army officers until they were baptized in the Spirit. And that led to a whole number of changes. When I was uh, about 15 going on 16, the Salvation Army at that time, the man who was kind of like in charge of the Salvation Army in the UK was my uncle. He was someone. And uh, the BBC came and asked him whether he could pinpoint two young people to make a schools program about. About life in the Salvation Army. It's part of the religion, uh, the religious department. And so my uncle said, well, I can, you know, it's like, it's like that thing in the whole of life. is not what you know. Because um, the BBC promised me 10 pounds and eternal fame. So <laughs> I took it. And um, there was me and there was a girl from London. And the BBC came and they interviewed me. They uh, filmed me in uh, the church in Halifax where I was being brought up in the Salvation Army on open airs. They uh, filmed us as a family. They did all of that sort of stuff. And then they went away. Sent me 10 pounds went away. Now, what you need to know is that as a 15 year old going 16, maybe that my life was very, there was two sides to my life. Some of you who grew up in church will know exactly how this feels. There was a church life and then there was a school life. And my big philosophy in life was never to let those two meet because I was two different sorts of people. In church, I was kind of like, I knew the language, I knew. In some ways, I was kind of like, you know, the blue-eyed boy of the youth group. But at school, I was Jack the Lad on the back row, effing and jeffing, which is an old Greek term. (laughs) With the best of them. And so I really needed those worlds never to collide. My faith as such, as a teenager, was fragile, but what it definitely was was personal and very private. Some of you are old enough to remember being at school when the technology department in school co- consisted of one television. <laughs> that was, do you remember? They were huge, weren't they? And then they put them on a stand and then chained them to the stand. Who would ever have been able to steal it? But anyway, in my school in Halifax, that was the technology department. And we had a lecture room. And by this stage, I was in the sixth form. And one Friday afternoon in general studies, uh, the teacher has said to the whole of our general studies group, 200 of us, um, that we're going to bring you to the lecture room. We're going to show you a film this afternoon, which was, not, which was not at all unusual. It was a way of teachers just getting away from that Friday afternoon. Um, we'll put a film on. In the 1970s, they called it education. And um, you will understand the horror when the teacher said, we're going to show you a film and some of you will be really interested in what happens next. And I'm on the back row. And it's me. Now, in the 1970s, around that time, one of the things that lots of Christians were talking about was Jesus could come back any time. At that moment, I just prayed. <laughs> now would be a really good time. To be honest, I don't mind if you take me or leave me. It'd just take the moment away. But as often, he didn't answer the prayers in the way you expect, and uh, we had to sit through the 30 minutes. And I could see, feel myself just going red and red and red. And as I left the room, one of the friends of mine walked out with me and he just said to me, He said, You don't believe all that. And he used a word I, I won't use in case I offend you. He said, You don't believe all that, do you? And it felt like there was a moment that everything sort of slowed down. And I said, Actually, I do. And without being overdramatic or melodramatic, that's the moment I became a Christian. I'd grown up in church. I knew the language. I knew what you did. I knew how I found myself around church. But it was the moment when actually someone called me out in public and said, are you one of his? In public, not in a church space. You see... I'd grown up, and some of you, if you're part of the Salvation Army in the past, you know they have something called a mercy seat, which is the equivalent of where you come forward and get prayed for. It's the equivalent of getting prayed for in in church. It's the same sort of thing. And I'd been forward loads of times, because as a five-year-old, I had loads to repent of. But I'd been forward loads of times, but the time I actually became a serious follower of Jesus was when someone in public life said, Are you his? It was a clash of two worlds. Now, I don't blame any teenager trying to hold those two worlds together. It's hard enough being a teenager at times. But there comes a time when the danger is, as adults, we try to do the same thing. Can we hold the two apart? And all of this teaching begins with this central point. There was a moment when you surrendered to Jesus and you surrendered to his lordship. And it wasn't a private, personal lordship. It was actually an alignment with the kingdom of God. It was an alignment to say, I want to see the whole of life differently. It was an alignment that said, actually, everything changes, not just in my private world, not just in my personal life. It's not somehow that now I've got a faith that can give me turbo charge." to help me with the problems I face. It's actually, I've aligned myself with a whole new kingdom. And I know you know that. But it's not, it's not bad to remind yourself every now and again. You see, what happened on that day was, I entered into a much bigger story. A much bigger story. I think I'd heard the gospel too many times presented like this. You're a sinner. Jesus died for you, that you might be forgiven, that you might go to heaven. And you and I both know that there is absolute truth in that, but it's just too short an explanation for what this life with God is actually about. You did not get saved simply to go to heaven. You got saved or you were brought into the kingdom. You surrendered to Jesus and he said, I'm going to wrap you into my purpose. The big biblical picture, a world that's been created, created good, a fallen world with all the tangles and turns and twists of sin that was redeemed by Christ. And he calls you and me and says, will you be part of this redemptive work with me? Now, there's some things, obviously, that only Jesus can do. Only Jesus died for our sins. Only Jesus was a God incarnate amongst us. But he calls us in and says, now you go. Until when? Until the restoration of all things. Not until we all get to heaven, but until Jesus restores all things together. And what we're doing in when we're talking about the kingdom of heaven in, in daily life, is we're working out what does redemption look like before Jesus transforms everything? That's what he's calling us into. And that's worth living for. It's what the New Testament's all about. When you read the epistles, what are they about? They're about people trying to live out this faith. In the complexity of their own culture, so when Paul is writing, you know his letters from Romans, that the letters that stretch, written by people we don't know, Hebrews through John through Peter, all the way through, including Revelation. I would argue, the whole of the New Testament from uh, from Romans through to Revelation, what the early church leaders are trying to say are to people like us: Can you work out? How to live this out in a culture that is not easy for you to live as a a follower of Jesus. So we've got form with this. That's why when you read the epistles. So when you're reading Romans. When you're reading Romans. The people who read that first were living in the biggest capital city of the biggest empire that the world had ever seen. And those of you that are in Chester and York and other places like that, you know what they left behind. What did the Romans ever do for us? You know what they left behind. You know that nobody had seen an empire like this. And here, there are little groups of people in Rome saying, we're not going to play the Roman game. We're going to follow the Jesus game. We're going to play the Jesus game. So now you read Romans differently. Because actually it's not out of history. It's actually in history. It's written to people in the capital city who are trying to work out what do you do. Corinthians. What do you do when your neighbour invites you for a meal and you're eating meat with them and you don't know where the meats come from? Has this been offered in a temple or not? Should you ask... And in Corinth, that was a big deal. Now, in Salford, that's not a really big deal right now. But sometimes it's a really big deal when they say, have you watched this DVD recently? It's brilliant. And you go, oh, that was only released yesterday. As a film. Where did you get your DVD from? Well, we, we can see the, the woman with the ice creams in the cinema. <laughs> Should you ask? And it's not an easy answer. So all these epistles are trying to work out how do you live between redemption and restoration? Does that make sense? And I, I, I kind of, if I had the time, I would emphasize this over and over and over because I don't think most of us read the New Testament through that lens. I think we forget that actually it was written to people who lived in places that you could go to. And if you get the chance to go to Pompeii in Italy, go Because it'll be the nearest thing you get to see what people who lived in Rome lived like. The volcano happened in 79. The letter to Romans was written around that sort of time. You'll get to see where did these people live. So we've got a long history of helping one another with this. This is what Peter writes in his letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. How many of you have been to Turkey on holiday? Okay. It's a fantastic place. The rest of you should go. It's very cheap. What you know is if you get the chance to go to Cappadocia, that's the place where all those weird rock formations are. It's where all the balloon flights happen. That's very different than actually if you go to Asia, that sort of Ephesus area. Which is very different than um, Bithynia in the north and so on and so forth. Peter wrote to people in real places, with real climate, with real dialect. And said you're living there as an exile. But you're living there as God's elect. You've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. There's two words I want to just sort of highlight. He says you are God's elect and you are God's exiles. I think we've got that one. She's gone. You're elect... And you're exiles Now that first word, elect, for some Christians, is like a red flag word. It's what we argue about. Who's elect? Who's not elect? How do you get elect? How do you know you're elect? All that sort of stuff. Forget all that for a moment. When Peter uses the language of your God's elect, one of the images that he points back to is Abraham. I'll bless those. This is in Genesis 12. I'll bless those who bless you him who dishonors you, i curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Why was Abraham called? Why was Abraham set apart? He was set apart to be a blessing to the whole of the earth. What's the wrestling that God does in the Old Testament with his own people? He wrestles with them because they wanted all the privileges of being God's people and none of the responsibilities. That's why God wrestles with them. That's why the prophets kept coming. So we can say of one another, you have been called by God into his kingdom. But you've been called by God into his kingdom for a purpose. I don't know how you became a Christian, who prayed with you, what happened. But the first prayer when someone comes to faith needs to be, I'm glad you've surrendered because God wants to use you. It's not something you grow into, though you do. It's not something that happens to you later down the life, five years when you've sorted yourself out. From the moment you surrender, Jesus says, You're part of my kingdom. We're going this way. You're called to be a blessing. So when we think about ourselves as a church, and some of you may have seen this diagram before, but there's a hundred dots. And there are six dots down here that are in red that represent approximately, it's very difficult to get the exact figure, approximately the number of people who worship in church once a month or more. What's our task? Our task is to be a blessing to the 94% of people Not all of whom say, we think you're bonkers. Not all of whom say, we don't get it. Just they don't get why we're so concerned about church. If you tell your neighbours, you might have told your neighbours that you're coming on holiday. Some of you will say, I didn't tell my neighbours because I don't want them to rob my house. So, (laughs) depending on where you live. But if you tell your neighbours, we're going to uh, Stafford for bank holiday weekend. Most people (laughs) will go... What? Why are you going to Stafford? Oh, we're camping. Really? And that's a holiday. Yeah, it's brilliant. And what happens when you camp? Oh, we go to church meetings. All the time. Brilliant. Your neighbours will think you're bonkers. They'll think you're bonkers. They don't get why church is important to us. But in a context of a country where, as a worshipping group, we are in a minority, our task is to be a blessing and a witness to the rest of the world. That's why you've been called. That's why God got hold of us. And the second thing is, you're exiles. Peter said to his people, You're exiles. And again, you know the story of the Old Testament. God wrestles with his people and they try and sort of escape that wrestling. And so God says, I'm going to take you out of your land and I'm going to put you in exile in a place where you did not choose. Graham said it earlier. Some of you are in, you feel like you're in the wrong place with the wrong people at the wrong time. It's called exile. Exile. You know that bit of the uh, Jeremiah's uh, book that we've all got as a little fridge magnet? I know the plans I have for you, plans for you to prosper, to give you a future, not to harm you. You know that brilliant one? Who's that written to? People in exile. What's the rest of the letter say? You're not going home. (laughs) In fact, you won't go home for 70 years. That's part of the letter. Now, I don't know if we've got anybody. I've got anybody under the age of twenty in the room. Just put your hand up. It's not. You don't need to be embarrassed by it. It's. It's quite an achievement. Okay, what's your name again? Rosanna. Is there anybody else under the age of twenty? Nathaniel, but Nathaniel is not going to put his hand up because he's asleep. There's Nathaniel, and Rose. Rosanna. When Jeremiah wrote, I know the plans I have for you. He wrote to a bunch of people like this. And he said, the only two people who are going home are Rosanna, if she lives till she's 90, and Nathaniel. The rest of you are staying. So get used to living in a culture that is not the way you want it to be. Stop just stamping your foot. And saying things aren't right around here. Stop insisting on your rights. Stop thinking it all should be done your way. Stop lamenting the past. Stop thinking it all should be different. And build and plant, marry, and pray for the shalom of the city. Pray for the peace. For if it is blessed, you will be blessed too. That is the context where many of us think that's what life's like for us. And there's a certain part of the Christian church that keeps on saying, no, we want it to be Christianized again. Listen, folks, we didn't do that great when we were in charge. If you know your church history, we weren't that great. Now we're not in charge on the whole, but we have influence. Now we're not in charge and things are not everything that we would want. But now what does it mean to be the people of God in exile? And whether it's in your workplace, for some of you, it'll be in your family, certainly in your towns and cities. What does it mean to be a people in exile? This is what it means to put the kingdom of God. And all of this kind of sounds a bit like a Bible study, but actually, we've got roots here. This is not a new gimmicky thing. This is actually basic Christianity that we need to re-engage with. It's the biblical story that we re-engage with. Are you with me? Okay. Okay. I've got one slide in there, you're going to have to talk to someone. Alright, just build it up. Alright, get ready. Get rid of that. This is the, the slide we use. Those dots that were in the corner, they can feel marginalized, but actually this is where most of you live out your life. Scattered. I was chatting to a guy yesterday, uh, we went out for a curry last night, which I realised this morning was not wise when you have to get up early to come and speak at an event. But anyway, we went to a curry last night and we were chatting away and uh, he he works in a school. And he was telling me about the culture of his school and about the WhatsApp group that have, the teachers and the staff have stayed in touch with one another over the summer And I said, you're really fortunate to be in a culture like that, because not everybody has a a working environment like that. And he said, yeah, but it didn't used to be like that. He said, and I don't think it's all down to us. He said, but there's three of us. And every Monday, uh, when all the rest of the staff have gone, we stay behind and we pray for the culture of our school. What could that guy do? Well, he could moan about the pressures on school teachers. And I've been married to one. I know them only too well. Or you go, I'm in exile here. But actually, God has not forgotten us here. There's something that could happen. He knew where his, and Graham used the language, but he knew where his front line was, that place where God had placed him. And he knew what God asked of him. Your front line is the place where you spend most of your time when you're with non-Christians, when you feel like you're living in exile. And for some of you, that will be with your extended family. For some of you, it'll be in your workplace. For some of you, it'll be in your sports clubs or your friendship groups, wherever it might be. I wonder if you can find someone to either speak to or listen to to answer these questions. Where's your most f- challenging front line? Why is it the most challenging? And what would you love to know? So what you need to do is you need to turn to someone who's still awake and say, you start. And listen to what they say. And we're going to get some answers back together in a moment. So what's your most challenging front line? Why is it challenging? And what would you love to know? Okay. But you've not got long, so don't hang around. It'll be about five minutes. It's kind of like in a in a room this long, you get a time lag. So the people at the front going, <laughs> "He's ready," at the back they're still talking. They have no idea what's going on. The bomb question was: um, I wonder whether you got to that. What would you love to know about? The place where God has put you. I wonder what some of you said. And I'm just, we're just going to give you a chance, for some of you at least, to say, this is what I heard or this is what I said. What did you say? I'm, I'm, we haven't really got time to do those bits. But what did you say about, I'd love to know. For some of you, it might be things like, I'd love to know whether God <laughs> whether God knows. <laughs> Well, I'm, what's happening. I'd love to know if I'm making a difference. I'd love to know what's going on. I wonder what you said. Now, Graham is going to do this um, facilitation of ring around. So it'd be really helpful if we could start with someone right at the back, and then someone right at the front, and then someone right at the back, and then someone right at the front. That'd be really helpful. So if we can do it in that sort of order, that would be the most efficient use of, of Graham's energy. Um any of you, what, what did you say? I'd love to know what. Just We've only got time for three or four of you, so this is your moment. Brilliant. Come on, Graham. <laughs> so, mostly it's work because I come across uh, people who are not just... Ignorant, but also antagonistic. Yeah. So it's everything from not knowing about Jesus to disliking organised religion to specifically disliking uh, Christian faith, especially Catholicism, for some of the people in my workplace. And that's that's the difficult thing is trying to get it balanced to everyone while yeah. also not offending or upsetting anyone in that. That's great. Area. Thank you. Thank you. Someone else. Let's just, let's just receive them and then we'll, there's one, there's one there along the way there. And then down to this guy here. Thanks for you. Hi, oh, a- there Yeah.
1: Um, I've recently left the workplace. I've taken early retirement, but they, I, people uh, at work knew I went, I go to church. They know I'm a Christian. Uh, they know I'm a believer more than just going to church. Um, and I'd suppose you'd just like to know whether or not the things I said and the, and the way I behaved actually had an impact and, yeah. and whether anybody and I'd love to
0: know that and I may never know that but you plant the seeds yeah. and any fruit comes much later. Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah. Down here. Because this side's done really well so far so it'd be nice to have from this side.
1: I'd love to know how to break through indifference, but still do that positively.
0: Okay, how do you make a difference to do it positively and not just be the moaning Christian? Anybody else? Yeah? I'd like to know who else has a personal faith in Jesus who really would want to make an impact. Okay, who else is around me? And how do you, kind of like by definition, how do you find that sort of thing out? Is there anybody else? It's just one one more perhaps. No? There's are great questions. How do you operate when people are suspicious, uh, sometimes at the very least, and antagonistic at the worst? Have we made any difference at all? How do we make a difference that positive and not just one that we seem like we're always against something? And then your question is, who else is around me? And is, Are there other people here? Is that the question you were asking? Yeah. I want to um, scoot through a couple of slides. That's our context that we're talking about. It's how do we equip one another? And the first thing I'd want to say to us is and it's a deep down belief this is why we have church to help one another navigate these sorts of questions we are the missional people of god now i told you at the beginning i've been a church leader for a long time i feel quite grand right now and epic You don't know how difficult it is to get that timing right. (laughs) I've been a church leader for 30-odd years. And um, particularly when I was younger, what I wanted was... I just wanted our church to grow. There's folks actually sitting here who were part of the church um, way back in those days. And it's good to see that they're still following Jesus. But I just... (laughs) I just wanted the church to grow. And we were sort of like, that was the only thing that was in my mind. Can our church grow? And so we would pray that our church would grow. We'd pray that we'd do schools work. And then the day came when I got invited to do schools work. And my church rejoiced because now I could go and do assemblies. And in some places, they let me do RE lessons, which was ridiculous. And all along, what I'd, at that time, what I'd forgotten was we had teachers there in front of us in the church. And our church were rejoicing because I could do an assembly. We'd never really pray for the teachers that were there. Our church at that time was in an inner city part of Salford. And if you were, if you had time during the day and you had a pulse, and you could walk and talk at the same time. You got on every voluntary group that was going. And it's easy for us to think that those are the important things to do. But actually, those of you that work in the council, that are part of the decision-making, that are part of safeguarding, that are part of planning, that are part of the organization, you're the ones that actually the church needs to pray for. When I became a church leader, they hauled me to the front of the church and they laid hands on me. And they sent me out to do my, my best or my worst. Every time you get a new job, your church should bring you to the front of the church and lay hands on you because you're going out into a new mission field. When that moment comes and you said you, you, you took early retirement and the rest of us are not bitter or envious or jealous <laughs> in any way, we rejoice with you through gritted teeth. But when that happens, you need to be brought to the front of the church and hands need to be laid on you because life is changing now. And you need to work out, what is God's call on my life now? We need the church to do this. It's not just for you to work out on your own. That's a long way of saying all of that. These questions really matter. That's why the culture of the church changes. Because the truth is, while there were people like me being leaders of the church my vision trumped yours every time. My job was more important than your job. My hopes were bigger than your hopes. So in church, we talked about school assemblies. We talked about the voluntary organisations. We talked about evangelism. We talked about small groups. We talked about the church growth. But the dramatic change happened in, in me when I was challenged about a prayer meeting we were just about to have. I spent ages talking about the fact that the church is uh, not a building, but the people. We'd never prayed. We'd prayed for people who were sick. We'd prayed for people who'd stopped coming. And we'd prayed for people we didn't know that they would come. But we never prayed for the situations where we knew we were. And one night, it changed for me, because I said to people at this little prayer meeting, how many of you hate being in your job, and they all went into one corner of the room? How many of you feel love your job, and they went into another part? How many of you wished you had a job, and they went into another part? How many of you are glad you haven't got a job, and they went into another part? And we started to pray. It was the first time we would prayed as a church for the context we are. We are the missional people of God, and we need the people of God around us to answer these questions. That's why you need a culture change. Because most of our churches don't operate like that. The second thing you need, I think, you, we need, is we need a personal mission imagination. Now, some of you may not be aware of this. But those of you that are older and have been part of church longer will. There was a day when mission, churches did mission... For two weeks every year. And it was a great time to go on holiday. It was... (laughs) We prayed a lot beforehand. We organised a lot. It cost a lot. We did it for two weeks. And at the end of it, we all sighed a big sigh of relief because it was over. And we encouraged one another. Well, we've not caught... We've not won anybody, but we've influenced quite a few. That's what it used to be like. And the whole church leadership world and again, I'm telling you something you might know or you may not know, but the whole sort of church leadership world changed because what we started to say is we don't need churches to do mission. Occasionally, we need missional churches. Now, you know that because that's the world many of you have been brought into. So in other words, it's not can you do a big push every two weeks, two weeks every year, but actually, can everything you do be missional as a church? And it's fantastic. In other words, what we did for our churches, we had a mission philosophy, a mission policy, a mission vision. But what we failed to do was to give that to you as an individual. So we left you with the idea that when people like me from the front talked about, can you make a difference for Jesus at work? It meant, can you crowbar Jesus into every conversation, no matter how artificial it might seem? So you're at work and someone says, it's been awful weather in August, hasn't it? And you're expected to say, yes, it's exactly that weather when I first met Jesus. <laughs> and they will say, How must I, what must I do to be saved? It doesn't work <laughs> like that. In other words, I think... If I'm speaking really honestly, and I'll never be invited back so I can. I think what happened was people like me, pastors, kept saying to people like you, you need to go and tell people about Jesus. And people like you internally said, you don't know my place. So you, people like you, not you obviously, but people like you, said he hasn't got a clue what he's talking about. And people like me thought, we just need to get them motivated a bit more. And actually what was going on is, we didn't have a big enough vision for what mission looked like as a whole life. And that's one of the things that we've tried to work with. And that's where I'm going to land this. I think that if you like, mission is like this sort of, they're getting quite passionate now, which is annoying. Mission is like this umbrella. It's not, it includes explaining about Jesus. It it includes giving a reason for the hope within you. It is massively, you need to find your own voice. You need to find out how do you say that sort of stuff. But it's more than that. Because otherwise, most of you will live most of your days going, there's another failure. And essentially, what we've come to believe is what God has called you to is consistency and courage. Consistency and courage. There's two words that you remember from this. Take those two words, consistency and courage. Consistency means this. That day by day, in the context you find yourselves in, you model godly character. And the godly character is the stuff, you know, it's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, the rest of them. And you simply need to allow that, the work of the Spirit. When we were praying uh, uh, in the 10 o'clock gathering this morning, and one of the first things that we prayed for was that the Spirit would be poured out upon us. Why is the Spirit poured out upon us? It's not solely that we might encounter him in worship. He's poured out upon us in order that the very life of God, the breath of God, the wind of God, would so fill us that actually it would seep out every pore. It's the fruit of the Spirit. I don't know if you want to, but how many of you know the experience where it feels like you're the person people keep coming to with their problems? And it's not because you've got the job of counsellor for your work or your street. Some of you know how that feels? Does it make you feel like, yeah, that happens quite a lot? Let me explain why. Because the Spirit of God is at work in you that enables the love and the kindness and the mercy and the wisdom of God to flow through you. You would expect that to happen with the people of God. And it's not because you wear a cross. It's not because you wander around whistling Lou Fellingham tunes, as good as they are. It's because the Spirit of God is at work in you. So what's the prayer before you go to work? Oh God, fill me again. You need to make good work. You need to do your work really well. The fundamental thing in in the epistles, when Paul writes to slaves, and I've got time to go into that background, but when he writes to slaves, he says this, will you work when they're watching you? Will you work as well when they're not watching you? Will you do your work well? To be honest, if you're the winder at work, you're the one that's always trying to sort of cut corners, you're the one that never makes coffee or never washes up the pots, If that's you, could you tell them you're a Buddhist? (laughs) Because you're not doing the rest of us any good. It's like if you've got a fish on your car and you keep cutting other people up, will you take the fish off your car? (laughs) Because you're not doing the rest of us any good at all. The work you do does two things. Firstly, if you do it to the best of your ability... You do it for those around you. You serve those around you. You work out of love. And secondly, you can offer it to God. So the question is, when I get to heaven and I meet Jesus, he will say, I saw what you did with what I gave you. And there'll be things I think that he'll be really pleased about. And there'll be things that he knows I messed up. And grace will cover those. And he'll talk about, I got every belief, he'll talk to me about the work, the physical work I did. But you that are accountants, he'll say to you too. I'm so glad because you saw the beauty of a spreadsheet. (laughs) You saw the beauty of a spreadsheet. And I'm I'm, well done, good and faithful servant, because nobody understood you. You spent a life going to parties and people saying, what do you do? And you said accountant and no one wanted to talk to you. (laughs) Well done, good and faithful. Do you believe, I suppose, is the question. Do you believe that your work mattered? Your question was a good question. Did it matter? The work you offer, did it matter? And the Bible says yes. And then thirdly, minister grace and love. This grace that you've received, this love, just minister it. On Elsmere Port, a few years ago, I met a woman whose job it was to make people redundant. And she talked through how she's thought about doing that with grace and love. If your job is to make people redundant, how do you do it with grace and love? And you want to say, I am so glad that God's placed that lady in Ellesmere Port Authority. And what that takes is daily consistency. It takes the daily prayer when you wake up in the morning going, God, here I am again. This is what I'm called to. This is where you're sending me to. I'm elect. I'm in exile. But this is what you've called me to. And it's not for nothing. But then there's moments that take Courage. Because if it's just consistency, you could be putting up with a whole stack of things that need to change. There's some things that need to change and there's some things that are at different stages of your life. You're in control of changing, about changing the culture of a place. That guy I had dinner with last night, what is he doing with his two people, his prayer partners in the school He is molding the culture of a school. He's not the head teacher. He's not senior staff. But he's changing the culture of a school through prayer. He's doing it. Some of you have authority. And you need people to pray with you, to pray wisdom with you, to say how do you use your authority that the place where you are might look a little bit more like the kingdom of God. A few years ago, A friend of mine was uh, given promotion um, with Coca-Cola. He works um, for that massive organization, or he did then. And he was in charge of a new department making a new drink. um, And they were based in Paris. And he said to me beforehand, he said, I'm going to go in. He said, I'm the senior manager now. He said, I'm going to explain how we're going to make this new drink to the glory of God and according to the values of the kingdom. And I said, well, good luck. And about a month later, we had another conversation. I said, how did it go? He said, well, I tried to explain why Coca-Cola matter to God. I tried to explain what the kingdom of God was about and how we would try and use this opportunity to serve a bigger purpose. Remember, he's just selling, he's just making colored, sugared water. All right. But he said, I, I knew. And I said, how did the staff react? He said, well, one was a Catholic who got it. And one was a new age sort of hippie dippy." and she thought it was fantastic one of them had no idea what I was on about and one of them just knew I was the boss and he sought to make that new arm of coca-cola one that could serve the purpose of god some of you know how much courage that takes it's not easy because you've got the position but you've read your Bibles and you know about Joseph and you know about Daniel. You know about the people like Esther who were in a place and God says, now's your moment. I put you here. You have a position of authority and of influence. Will you use it? Of Boaz, of Ruth. You know these people. What does it look like to mold a culture? What does it mean to be a messenger of the gospel? And some of you... You need courage to speak out and say, this is why I follow Jesus. In a way that sounds like you. You need to find your language. You can't copy the preacher. It needs to be your language. And then finally, you need to stand for truth and justice. And be a mouthpiece. You need consistency and you need courage. This is what God has called you to Does that make sense? I'm coming to an end. This is a a sentence that doesn't actually make any sense. Um, Who knows where my head was when I wrote that? I think it should just say which of these come more easily for me, which are a stretch, and what could happen next? Do you want to talk to someone? And then, we haven't got long. Well, seven minutes. Will you pray for one another? And then we'll bring this to a close. So wherever you are in your conversation or your prayer, at half past I will pray. Because then we can kind of all know that we've finished but will you talk to someone about this and then pray for one another? Praying is more important than talking. Go for it. Let me just, um, before I pray... Let me just highlight some resources that are on the back table. There are three books there. Um, there are two of them that I wrote. Uh, I wrote Imagine Church a while ago, which is about actually how do you begin to change the culture of your church when this becomes really important? What do you do? It's quite practical. What do you do? And then uh, more. last month, this came out, Scattered and Gathered, which was, if you've already begun this, how do you keep it going? Because it, this is not a topic, it's not a special interest. This is kind of like the this is the whole thing, and those two books kind of like partner together. And then, if you're interested in thinking about actually how do the six M's work, those things, those aspects of mission, how do they work out in your ordinary life? Mark Green's book, um, Fruitfulness on the Front Line, explore that. Normally ten pounds each. Today nine pounds each, or a special offer: three of them for twenty-seven. There on the back, there's um, this, which is called Frontline Sundays. If you lead a church, or you know someone who does, or you lead a small group, and you think this might be a resource, it's a way of outlining a series of services that explore this. How do you do this? It's got resources in it, it's got some films in it, it's got some ideas for songs, it's got some ideas for sermons, or for stuff you could do as a small group. If you want to take one of those, there's free... You can take those with you if that's going to be helpful. What we would love is to stay in touch with you. And there's um, a way of signing up um, on the table where the books are. If you just sh- give us your email address and tick uh, that you'll be, we'll be in touch with you, then we'll add you to our mailing list. So three books, one for free, help us stay in touch with you. When Paul was writing to that church in Rome, in chapter 12, he talked about us offering our own lives. And then about 2,000 years later, a man called Eugene Peterson wrote a paraphrase of the Bible, and he did it really well, uh, to the extent that sometimes you're reading the message and think, I didn't realize that was in the Bible. And then you go back to the NIV and realize it wasn't. (laughs) But it should have been. It's that good. And this is how Eugene Peterson paraphrased Romans 12, and I leave it with you. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. May you do that and may you see him work through you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you very much.